Just a reminder for those of you who are uh, at home today, you may want to get some bread and some juice or wine to participate in communion this morning. And if you're here and you didn't receive a communion cup when you came in, if you could just stick your hand up and Charlie will bring you one, we'd be very happy to do that for you. Would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving the whole world so much that you sent your Son for us. You sent him to teach us who you are and what you're like and how to follow you closely. You sent him out of love. And today we need an extra helping of love. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to understand and to embrace hard teachings. And I ask you to soften our hearts and fill our spirits with your Spirit so that we can be empowered to be obedient to your will and find our peace and our protection in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing this morning our series called That Sermon. It focuses on Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, and it answers the questions, what does kingdom living look like for us, and what does kingdom community look like in the church? Now, I can easily see people reading through the, the, this whole part of the Gospels and reading through the Sermon on the Mount and thinking, well, I can follow Jesus in some ways, but some of this stuff is just too serious. It's too hard. I can't do this stuff. Well, you're right if you're thinking that. You can't do it. And it is too hard. If you try to do it without Jesus, you will never make it because some of this is harder than we can do on our own. You can't do it without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. God does not intend for you to walk alone on this path. He intends to walk with you, and uh, he intends his church to walk with you. He's promised to walk with you and to give you rest, even in times of difficulty. Well, today we're looking at another one of those really inconvenient passages in the Bible, uh, one of those that, that in the flesh we might want to just skip over and leave out because there's some uncomfortable things here. These 10 verses in Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48, um, they speak to some very big issues in our lives. So I encourage you to open your Bible with me this morning to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be starting at verse 38. That's Matthew 5 and verse 38. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anybody forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sets rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what will your reward be? What reward will you get? Are, you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Well, that's a lot to unpack, uh, but essentially, these two pieces belong together. They divide evenly into two pieces, or mostly evenly into two pieces that are very related. The first part is about revenge and retaliation. The second part here is about the law of love and how it applies to some of those same people we might retaliate against. So let's start with the first part, revenge and retaliation. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's a fellow named Ernest Gordon, and uh, he wrote a, an autobiography called Miracle on the River Kwai. It's a, a true story. It's about Scottish soldiers who were taken prisoner and forced by their Japanese captors to work on what was called the Burma Railroad during World War II. Uh, because they were being forced to do this work, the soldiers did not cooperate with the Japanese. In fact, they didn't even cooperate with one another. Things took a very brutal turn amongst prisoners and degenerated into some really savage behavior. The atmosphere was poisonous. Well, one day, during a tool count, the guards discovered that a shovel was missing. Uh, the officer in charge was absolutely furious, and he lined the squadron up, and he demanded the missing shovel be produced right now or else. When nobody came forward, he got out his gun, and he threatened to shoot the entire bunch on the spot. It was very obvious that the officer meant what he said. Well, finally, a man stepped forward, and the officer put away his pistol, and he picked up his shovel, and he beat that man to death. Well, as it turned out a little later, they found out there was no miscount and no shovels were missing at all. There was a miscount. The word spread through the camp that an innocent man had been willing to die to save the others in his squadron. It was a turning point in the camp. The men were inspired by this soldier's sacrifice, whereas things had been really savage and they'd been turning on each other before. They began to treat each other, Gordon says, like brothers. This death of this one man on behalf of the others was a turning point. The prisoners became determined to survive, and they learned to cope, and they began to help one another, and they worked to make life easier especially for those who were worse off as prisoners. Some of those prisoners had drifted into deep depression and despair, and the others began to care for them and began to encourage them and build them up. Well, it went on further than that. Prisoners began to out organize outdoor church services, and they scrounged some books to form a lending library. You know, it turned out that the few copies of the Bible that they had were the most in-demand books in their little library. Well, because of the one selfless sacrifice of that man, many came home from that experience with great faith in Christ. Believers like Ernest Gordon came home with their faith stronger than before they had been taken prisoner. On a much larger scale, we know that that kind of sacrifice is what Jesus did for us, sacrificing himself for our lives. And remembering that, gives us perspective as we look at this passage. It helps us to see this passage in maybe a different light than we might if we just looked at it without. In Matthew 5, in verse 38, Jesus is quoting the oldest known human law. It's called the Lex Tononis, and it appears in the code of the uh, Hammurabi, which is a, an ancient Babylonian text. 
Um, of course, it also appears in the Bible. It appears in the Bible at least three times. Um, Exodus 21 says, if there is a serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. It's repeated in Deuteronomy 24 and Leviticus 19. Now, this wasn't a license to go all vigilante on those people who hurt you. In fact, this was controlled by judges. Uh, they were in charge of the punishment. It wasn't kind of a Hatfields versus the McCorys thing like we talked about a few weeks back where, you know, one person gets killed and then they go to the other family and they kill one over there and then they come back and they kill somebody over here. Like, it wasn't that kind of a situation at all. Before this law, any tribe who had somebody in their tribe killed or hurt, they had the right of revenge. And they would take up their weapons and they would go and they would try to kill the entire tribe that had caused the damage. So this law was actually an attempt to prevent that kind of killing. You know, it, it sounds cruel as you read it, but this was intended for mercy. This was a lot lower than what would have happened if they'd been able to go out and kill an entire tribe. You could petition the court and you could have the very thing that happened to you done to the person who did it. Now, if you look at it, it does tell us, you know, at least there, there's a little bit about God's justice when we think about it. Retaliation was your right, and it was considered justice under the law. And Jesus says about this, he says, you've heard that it was said, now he's talking about the, this law, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Well, that's unexpected. His listeners, especially the teachers of the law and the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were all about their rights under the law. They had the right to prosecute, and they often did. But under Roman rule, they did not have the right to put someone to death but they could have the Romans do it for them. And that's how Jesus ended up crucified instead of stoned to death, was because they had the Romans do the killing. Jesus here gives us four examples of how his new law applies. You know, he's always trying to get us to go beyond what the law says, to beyond what the letter of the law says. And, and he gives us four examples here uh, what we might call the law of love and how it works out. Here's what he says. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles with them. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I suspect that these four examples are not very popular in our society today. Just, just a guess. Uh, given the couple of years that we've had and some of the behavior, um, remember that all through the first part of this sermon, Jesus has been saying, you've heard it said, your ancestors said, but I say. The challenge is to do something far better than the letter of the law, to do something that reflects 
mostly a changed heart. So Jesus gives us four different kinds of examples here from four different aspects of life. First of all, he gives us a personal relationship example. You know, it was their right if they were struck in the right cheek, they could strike them back. And Jesus says instead, turn the other cheek. Now, I've heard a lot of preachers split hairs on this one, trying to find a, a loophole, an escape clause, a way out of this, but the bottom line is don't retaliate. That's the message. And then he gives us an example from the justice system. If somebody sues you, and the assumption here is, believe it or not, the assumption here is that you have been the one who's done something wrong. This is not being sued for something you haven't done. This is being sued for something you did do. And if someone sues you, instead of just giving him what the law requires, he says, give him your coat too. There were, there were two things in the law you could take from a person. You could take you know, uh, one of their garments, one of the thinner garments, but you couldn't take their outer coat. You couldn't take that because it was used as a blanket to sleep at night. And so you couldn't take something that would keep the person alive. And Jesus says, no, 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 just, just give them that too. Go well beyond what's required by the law. Well, then he takes an example from politics. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. The Roman occupiers could stop anyone on the street and force them to carry their gear or anything else they wanted uh, for a mile. That was the legal limit. Um, I guess it kept them from overstepping, although I'm sure some did. And Jesus says about that, he says, don't just go the one mile, go two miles. Go the extra mile. This is a Roman law under the rule of Rome that allowed the soldiers on the day of Jesus' crucifixion to, to conscript Simon of Cyrene and make him carry Jesus' cross on his behalf. Using this law, this is how this worked. And Jesus says, go the extra mile. And then Jesus gives an example from the loan business, from business. He says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I think when something happens to us, when somebody does something to us, revenge is often our first instinct. Uh, when we're offended, we scream, my rights, my rights. And I don't think Jesus would dispute with you that you have rights. But Essentially, Jesus seems to be saying in this passage, all these things are your right under the law, but I want to see your heart. What's your heart doing? Where's your heart at? I want to see you be better than that, better than the letter of the law. I want you to learn compassion. I want you to learn forgiveness. Essentially, I want to see you behave as I behave. Our first reaction, I think, is to fight back. Our first instinct is to refuse to go where we don't want to go, to keep what we have and not give anything away to other people. And Jesus is saying, where's your heart in that? I want to see your changed heart. He wants to see you live your Christian life as living sacrifices. That's from another passage by Paul that talks about exactly the same thing. We'll look at that in a minute. But Jesus wants us to be sacrificial in our love. Jesus is looking for a heart, it seems, that says, I will not resist, though it kills me. I will not retaliate. I will not seek revenge 
revenge. This is, this is not about some obscure form of pacifism. This is not some old hippie nuts and berries thing. Our own church has a lot of this in our history. We refer to it often as biblical non-resistance. Uh, that's how we describe what Jesus is saying. We don't refuse to resist, or we don't refuse to resist, because we're wimpy or cowards or believe in peace at all costs that hurts others. Even we don't believe in that. But, but given a personal choice, the choice to hurt someone back for an offense, we'd rather take the injury ourselves. That's been part of our history. Uh, violence would not be our first choice. Violence would not be our second choice. I have met men who, during the First World War, um, when I first started ministry, there were several, um, who had taken prison rather than kill someone else. I've met many others who had taken alternate service where they're very patriotic, but instead of killing because they felt like this passage taught them that they could not, they took alternate service. And there have been... And more recently, a lot of good stories, even a, a recent movie that talked about somebody who, who went into the field as a medic without a weapon. Different ways of living out our faith. You know, in the first century, when the Christians behaved like this, it was a major witness to the Romans who did everything by brute force. We are called to not retaliate. Now, a lot of Americans in our culture today would say, that's really stupid. <laughs> you know, that's not how I live. It's pretty obvious. But if I understand Jesus rightly, he's saying, you know, there's something right and there's something very freeing about this teaching. William Barclay said, the Christian thinks not of his rights, but of his duties. Not of his privileges, but of his responsibilities. Myron Augsburger says that as Christians, we are free from having our behavior determined by the way we are treated. I'm going to say that again. We are free from having our behavior determined by the way that we are treated. Jesus doesn't stop there, though, does he? He, does, he just doesn't quit. He just keeps going with this uncomfortable subject. He says, you have heard it said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children. This is a conditional clause here. It says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. When we behave like this, we are behaving as children of God. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even the pagans do that? He takes the, the, the worst enemies he can think of. You know, the tax collectors were hated by the Jews because they extorted their own brothers. And the pagans were considered unclean and unworthy. And you couldn't, if you touched a pagan, you had to go through ceremonial cleansing in order to return to worship. And Jesus says, this is how these people act. Aren't you a little better than this if you're following me? Be perfect, 
therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. When it's talking about perfection, it's not talking about never making a mistake. It's talking about being perfect in love. And there are several passages that talk about that. You know, it's really easy to hate your enemies. I can do that easy. I don't have to work at that. I can hate my enemies. And it's really easy sometimes to love your neighbors. Depends on how big the circle is that includes your neighbors. Who is my neighbor anyway? We know that story of the Good Samaritan. If our circle of of those neighbors is small, if it only includes the people we know at church, if it only includes the people that we like in the neighborhood, then it's very easy to love our neighbors. What happens when we expand that circle, when we make that circle bigger, and Jesus begins to make it so big that it begins to include everyone? That makes it harder. We're to have a much higher love than the standard that's set by society. I I hear music here. You know, I love the old Steve Winwood song, Higher Love. I always thought it would make a great gospel song. It's just got that kind of a feel to it. A disciple lives by the higher law of love. And we need to respond in a way that reflects the freedom and the love of Jesus. Think of Jesus on the cross and how he expressed his love for all and forgave his enemies. Even Paul, a man who persecuted and killed Christians before Jesus, he had his heart changed. And he learned to live like this. And I think, you know, the tone that I get from reading about Paul, I I get this sense that he's on the edge of violence. He's on that edge of you know, of anger. He's on that edge of the hard line. And then Jesus gets a hold of him. And then referring back to this teaching by Jesus, Paul says this, he says, do not repay evil for evil, but be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. Everyone? If it's possible, this is kind of the escape clause, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That doesn't imply that everyone's going to live at peace with you. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And then he hearkens back and he says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Now this is Paul talking. This is the hardliner. This is the legalist. And even he had his heart softened. Well, I started a story here about these men in the concentration camp during World War II. In the miracle on the River Kwai, Ernest Gordon talked about the day that the Allies swept in and liberated the camp. The survivors, uh, who looked a little bit like human skeletons by then, they lined up, and they lined up their guards in front of them, face to face, two rows. This was their chance for revenge. This was their chance to retaliate for years of starvation and brutal treatment. 
and they could have attacked and killed their guards, and the Allied soldiers would have stood back and let them. They wouldn't have interfered. But instead of attacking, the freed Scotsman said, no more hatred, no more killing. They said, now what we need is forgiveness. Imagine that. What happened to those people? Well, we know what happened to those people. Jesus got a hold of those people. Sacrificial love has a transforming power. You know, some of our people have opted to serve in the military. Some of our people have opted to serve in police force. Some of our people have opted to do that. And, and I think that that, according to Romans, as I understand Romans and Paul's teaching there, you know, the idea of the sword of the Lord, that God appoints people in those kinds of positions, and I believe calls people in those kinds of positions, you know, that that is a calling. But for the rest of us, this is it. This is what we're called to. And we need, in order to do it, the transforming power of Jesus. We can't do it on our own, I don't think. I think our natural instinct is not going in this direction. The transformation we need comes in the cross of Christ. And let me ask you a question today. Have you been transformed? Has Jesus changed your heart? Have you been transformed in some things, or in all of these things, have we been able to surrender to God? Surrender to God is a strong thing, not a weak thing. Have you received Jesus in your heart? Have you received him in name only? A lot of people call themselves Christians these days, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're fully committed to God. Do you remember your total surrender to God? Do you remember that time when you came to Jesus and you, you received him as Lord and Savior? Is that something you hold dear? Is that something that you remember how powerful that experience was? Or have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the total surrender of your heart when you came to know him? We know Jesus when we come to the point of admitting that, that we are sinful human beings and that we really need forgiveness. In fact, so many people today seem to be longing for somebody to just say to them, I forgive you. Sons and daughters who've been outcasts, son, people who have been through terrible experiences. I spent a lot of time working with people who were drug addicted, and, and so many of them just wanted someone to say, I love you and I forgive you. And so many of them came to Jesus. Because when you come to Jesus and you ask forgiveness, Jesus forgives you. And if you say, Jesus, please come into my life and live in my heart and be the Lord of my life, you are forgiven and he will come in. If you believe that he's the son of God who died for your sins on a cross a long time ago so you can live free today, you will be saved. It's the essence of the gospel. That's the start of the gospel. Before we take communion this morning, 
we're going to prepare our hearts. And uh, as we spend a few quiet moments in prayer, I think this is a really good time to talk to God. If you've never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, then this is a very good time to do it. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Repent or turn from your sin and ask Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior. He will forgive you, and you will begin a new relationship with him. This is also a good time to renew your relationship with Christ. Enter into it the same way. Start fresh if you have to, but make Jesus the center and be transformed again. Let's pray. Father God, create in us a peace that comes from Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Create a love that comes from your heart. Hear us in these moments as we open our hearts and our lives to you. Forgive our sins. Be our Lord. You are our Savior. Hear our silent prayers in these moments. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for your forgiveness. Help us to live for you always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.